Now, in the next few minutes, uh, we're going to, I'm, I'm going to start playing a portion of a person who is ringleader. Ringleader whose core motivation is skewed and self-righteous. Allowing very important and necessary information to be transpired, but with full control. Here we go. An attorney and the president of Empower Oversight, an organization dedicated to enhancing independent oversight of government and corporate wrongdoing. Prior to joining Empower Oversight, Mr. Levitt was a Senate-confirmed member of the United States Merit System Protection Board, which adjudicates whistleblower retaliation claims. Mr. Levitt also served as the principal deputy special counsel at the office of the special counsel, which enforces federal whistleblower laws. Earlier in his career, Mr. Levitt was a counsel for Senator Grassley on the Senate Judiciary Committee and staffer on the House Oversight and Government Reform Committee. He's a graduate of Brigham Young uh, University and Georgetown University Law Center and is considered an expert on the whistleblower law. As far as I know, the FBI hasn't questioned his loyalty to the country. We welcome our witnesses and thank them for appearing today. We will begin by swearing you in. Would you please uh, stand and raise your right hand? Do you swear or affirm under penalty or perjury, or penalty of perjury that the, the testimony you are about to give is true and correct to the best of your knowledge, information, and belief, so help you God? Let the record show that each witness answered in the affirmative. Uh, thank you. Please be seated. Please know that your written testimony will be entered into the record in its entirety. Accordingly, we ask that you summarize your testimony in approximately five, but we're going to give you plenty of time. Uh, but if you can keep it around five, great. But if you go over, no, 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 no worries there. Um, and we will start with Mr. O'Boyle. Uh, Mr. O'Boyle, you're recognized for your opening statement. Chairman Jordan, members of the committee, thank you for addressing FBI malfeasance and allowing me to speak today. Aside from that point of gratitude, I'm sad, I'm disappointed, and I'm angry that I have to be here to testify about the weaponization of the FBI and DOJ. Weaponization against not only its own employees, but against those institutions and individuals that are supposed to protect the American people. I am here today because even though I am wrongfully suspended from the FBI, I remain duty-bound to the American people to play my small role in rectifying these issues. After all, I never swore an oath to the FBI. I swore an oath to the Constitution. I've served my nation and community my entire adult life, first in the United States Army, then as a police officer, and lastly as an FBI special agent. Shortly after high school, I joined the United States Army where I served in the infantry and I was quickly promoted through the ranks. I deployed to both Iraq and Afghanistan in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom and Operation Enduring Freedom. I served in the historic 101st Airborne Division. I received the Combat Infantryman's Badge, which is awarded to those infantrymen who engage in ground combat with our nation's enemies. The Army's official motto is, this will defend. Along with numerous others, I volunteered to serve this nation, risking my life in combat to protect America and her values. I know some of the best men and women this country has to offer. They come from all backgrounds, races, and creeds. They helped mold me into the person I am today. Each was willing to sacrifice, and many did, to protect this great nation. It is our duty to honor their sacrifices by standing up for what is right, regardless of the difficulty. After serving in the Army, I became a police officer. Police officers, like me, are imperfect beings, but we strive to uphold the law and the Constitution. People who go to work every day trying to make their communities better, yet who nonetheless are faced with budget cuts and calls for defunding as we continue spiraling away from law and order as a nation. 
While serving as a police officer, I finished my bachelor's degree, graduating with honors in criminology and law studies. Shortly thereafter, I began the long road to becoming an FBI special agent, a position I once understood to be the pinnacle of law enforcement and a way to continue to serve this nation and protect and defend the Constitution. During my four years as a special agent, I received the highest annual review an employee can receive. I volunteered for, tried out for, and was selected for an FBI SWAT team. I also volunteered for, tried out for, and was selected for a new unit the FBI created. I also received an award for my work on an anti-abortion extremism case. I've been smeared as a malcontent and subpar FBI employee. This smear stands in stark contrast to my life in public service. This smear campaign, disgusting as it is, is unsurprising. Despite our oath to uphold the Constitution, too many in the FBI aren't willing to sacrifice for the hard right over the easy wrong. They see what becomes of whistleblowers, how the FBI destroys their careers, suspends them under false pretenses, takes their security clearances and pay with no true options for real recourse or remedy. This is by design. It creates an Orwellian atmosphere that silences opposition and discussion. We know what is right to do, yet we too often refuse to do what is right because of the difficulty and suffering it incurs. I couldn't knowingly continue on this path silently without speaking out against the weaponization I witnessed, even if it meant losing my job, my career, my livelihood, my family's home, and now my anonymity. It's up to members of this committee, current and former FBI employees, and indeed all Americans, to ensure that the weaponization of our own government against the people comes to an end, no matter the personal cost. As James Madison prudently opined, in framing a government which is to be administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the governed, and the next place, oblige it to control itself. The safeguards currently in place at the FBI are clearly inadequate and must be reworked to protect whistleblowers and others who are inappropriately targeted. The FBI can extract whatever they want from me. I'm willing to bear that burden. I've sworn to defend this country from enemies, both foreign and domestic, even if that means sacrificing my life. I've lived that oath out since first enlisting in the Army, consistently saying, here am I, send me. My oath, however, did not include sacrificing the hopes, dreams, and livelihood of my family. My strong, beautiful, and courageous wife, and our four sweet and beautiful daughters who have endured this process along with me. In weaponized fashion, the FBI allowed me to accept orders to a new position halfway across the country. They allowed us to sell my family's home. They ordered me to report to the new unit when our youngest daughter was two weeks old. Then, on my first day on the new assignment, they suspended me, rendering my family homeless. <clears throat> they refused to release our goods, including our clothes, for weeks. <clears throat> All I wanted to do was serve my country by stopping bad guys and protecting the innocent. To my chagrin, bad guys have begun running parts of the government, making it difficult to continue to serve this nation and protect the innocent. But I, for one, will never stop trying, and I'll never forget my oath. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Boyle. God bless. So what this man said is exactly what I've been saying for years. There are a lot of good people, a lot of good people, and I'm not one of them. I was never a good person. I mean, I, there are a lot of good people that have sacrificed their lives. And they have, they're telling you what they do. If anything, over the past five years, on a very remedial level, this has happened to me. I've walked you through their processes. They destroy you. They suffocate you. 
They tie your hands to not be able to feed or clothe yourself. How dare you speak? And they will cause maximum pain when they can. I think, well, I know that those that actually took an oath to the U.S. Constitution are the ones that sacrifice the most, the ones that don't lose focus. These people are heroes. And please, you know, understand when I use the simile of what happened to me, it's because you saw it live and transpire in front of your eyes day by day on a lower level, kind of like, you know, like on a Lego level, not on a building a building level, right? I'm a Lego. They are the buildings. And that's what's important for you to understand. When you sacrifice, you don't sacrifice saying, I'm going to hold some back. You've got to be all in. When you've asserted that this is the purpose and the purpose is, I will stand in truth because your truth is your purpose, then you have nothing to fear. Mr. Boyle walked you through how they did it. Mr. Boyle took your hand just now and told you who he was, what he did, and how he did it, and then what was done to him. The war for your mind, well, they won that. There's got to be a way that we can break that fabric of society that they weaved. The only way we do it is if we're transparent and open. Mr. Boyle just got naked for all of you. It wouldn't be easy to sit there and smear him for it. Catherine Arnett got naked for all of you. Humiliated with charges. It's kind of hard to hate her or talk smack. Mr. Friend did the same. Who defines what a whistleblower is? Who defines what is right and what is wrong, what's righteous? And like Mr. Friend said, it's the information, not the person. Because there are whistleblowers that are from all walks of life. Some were angels all along. Some were demons all along. Until that point where they remember their oath. There are many other people that have sacrificed everything. And when you sacrifice everything, I mean, you have to understand what that means. He explained, and they will be explaining as we watch a few more minutes of this, how they just wanted to punish people. And again, this goes back into instilling fear. Fear is a very motivating mechanism. And misinformation, of course, too. But fear is key. Fear and repression. Maybe done. Ah, fear and repression. By intimidating to instill fear in the population, using repressions and violence, like over-the-top raids because you walked into the Capitol. I wanted to go back to something before we play this again and take kind of like just a little musical hiatus. Here's the reason why. Because tomorrow is my daughter's birthday, so I'm going to be doing an extended show today um, because she has to leave and she won't be here on her birthday, and I want to spend time with her. So I, I wanted to take a musical break. But before we do that, while we listen to the song, 
here's what I want you to think of. Remember at some point in the testimony how the guy said that they were trying to get him to break the law and open up investigations? You have to think, and what did they say? Well, the footage on the Capitol, why? Because they had confidential human sources or they would expose names and faces, probably giving away operations, right? Those are all real things, real things. And so you have to think, uh, wait, so they did have them. Well, I already told you I already had it. And that's fact. And I believe the, 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 the not showing the footage is because it will taint and cause harm to society. You guys will lose faith if all that video footage is out. Because then you'll realize that, you know, the, the, the way the FBI is operating right now, just so you understand, not releasing information and why it's not being released is because there are a lot of people who you think are on your side, they're not. And maybe showing that to the people will cause severe harm rather than good. Yeah, but I just need the truth. It's a train wreck. It's a train wreck. And this is one of my favorite, I guess, songs ever. So let's take a break. Um, it's kind of sad, but one of my favorites. Let's take a quick break and remind ourselves, how is it that they're convincing us that we are the underdog? That is totally not the case. Totally not the case. Super train wreck. Super duper train wreck. And it's fine. It'll be fine. I have to say, those are <laughs> one of the most favorite lyrics ever crafted. It's pretty interesting how James Arthur puts it out. And the words, uh, you know, one may see it as unsung love, but I believe that they're the embodiment of uh, people like those that you hear, those in leadership that stand before you humbled and inspired by the immense power and significance that you as a people hold as the guiding light of our nation. And as a leader, I believe, and I, and I see it, they can acknowledge that the true strength and purpose lies not within themselves as leaders or whistleblowers, but within each and every one of you. You are the collective heartbeat of our nation. You are the compass that guides the path to the driving force behind our shared aspirations. It is your voices, your hopes, and your dreams that fuel any whistleblower's unwavering commitment to serving you. And I can recognize that. I can recognize my role in that too. And it's not one of dominance or authority. 
just like all the others. President Trump is not in for dominance or authority. These whistleblowers are not in for dominance or authority, but rather that of a steward entrusted with the responsibility to amplify your voices, protect your rights, and empower each and every one of your own potential. And I know that I'm always here listening, trying to understand and to channel these needs and aspirations into tangible action. I've always pledged to lead, um, you know, my efforts in my private and, and public and service of life with transparency and accountability and, and, and also reminding myself of the human aspect of the deep sense of empathy that is necessary to strive and to foster an inclusive environment where every voice is heard, every perspective is valued, and every individual is empowered to contribute to collective success. All of us together can shape the course of our nation with shared values serving as our compass and the belief in our collective potential lighting our way. Potential, equal opportunity, the actual foundations of this nation. And in these times of challenge, uncertainty, or adversity, remember that it is your resilience that defines us as a nation. Your unwavering spirit has carried us through storms and you just don't see it yet. I do. I see it. Every single time I read your exchanges on social media discussing topics, I, I, I get, I'm like, I almost feel like, wow, this is so happening. And the, the, the clapbacks, man, I, I think I have the smartest damn audience ever. And you know, we're all a family. And that, I think that was, that's, we must redefine what family is. Family, obviously, we know is sharing blood, right? But family is the core of America. And I hope uh, we understand that America 250 should be grounded in that unity because it's, it's so incredible that together we weather storms, overcome obstacles, and emerge even stronger, united, and more compassionate. And that's how man evolves and understands the divinity of our creator. So we should all be walking hand in hand, bound by the common thread of just our simple citizenship and driven to share a vision of a just, inclusive, and prosperous society. And, I, you know, all these whistleblowers and, and, and people that are naked, that have been humiliated I can assure you that they're forever grateful for the trust that you've placed in them because together with your guiding light, you can navigate anything, celebrate triumphs like no other and build a future worthy um, of our collective dreams. And that is fact. It's important to understand that. It's important to understand just how much the people have been doing. Because this tyranny has indeed used theaters as a mean to pacify the populace, employing various techniques. And I can name five. And we've identified those. And if through a collective collaboration and joy, the show was created to show just that. Six hard points. A strategy that has been observed throughout history. <laughs> it's never changed. It's just evolved to match the times. 
And every single oppressive regime has utilized theater as a powerful tool for social control. So allow me to continue with this theater, which is both beneficial and non to the people. This theater is pacifying those that seek instant gratification, almost like, I need porn. (laughs) They just go on. This is instant gratification. This hearing should not gratify you because all you have is four people and a bunch of people talking about stuff. And they might start some form of action that may drop later because they're going to just find something else to distract you with. Here are your crumbs being tossed at you, but at the same time showing you that things are happening. Bless you. Um, Mr. Friend, you're recognized for your opening statement. Thank you, Chairman Jorman. And members of the committee, my name is Stephen Friend. I'm a senior fellow for the Center for Renewing America. Prior to assuming my current position, I was a special agent for the Federal Bureau of Investigation for eight and a half years. During that time, I investigated approximately 200 violent crimes, such as aggravated assaults, murder, child abuse, rape, robbery, child molestation, child pornography, and human trafficking. I also served five years on an FBI SWAT team and spent five years as a local law enforcement officer in the state of Georgia. In August 2022, I made protected whistleblower disclosures to my immediate supervisor, assistant special agents in charge, and special agent in charge about my concerns regarding January 6 investigations assigned to my office. I believed our departures from case management rules established in the FBI's domestic investigations and operations guide could have undermined potentially righteous prosecutions and may have been part of an effort to inflate the FBI's statistics on domestic extremism. I also voiced concerns that the FBI's use of SWAT and large-scale arrest operations to apprehend suspects who were accused of nonviolent crimes and misdemeanors represented by counsel and who pledged to cooperate with the federal authorities in the event of criminal charges created an unnecessary risk to FBI personnel and public safety. At each level of my chain of command, leadership cautioned that despite my exemplary work performance, whistleblowing placed my otherwise bright future with the FBI at risk. Special agents take an oath to protect the U.S. Constitution. The dangers of federal law enforcement overreach were hammered home to me when I was required to attend trainings at the Holocaust Memorial Museum and MLK Memorial. I cited my oath and training in my conversations with my FBI supervisors. Nevertheless, the FBI weaponized the security clearance processes to facilitate my removal from active duty within one month of my disclosures. In addition to an indefinite unpaid suspension, the FBI initiated a campaign of humiliation and intimidation to punish and pressure me to resign. In violation of HIPAA, individuals at the FBI leaked my private medical information to a reporter at the New York Times. In violation of the Privacy Act, the FBI refused to furnish my training records for several months. To date, they only provide a portion of the records, which are essential to obtaining private investigator and firearms licenses in the state of Florida. Even after releasing some of the records, the FBI refuses to confirm their legitimacy to the Florida Department of Agriculture, rendering the few documents they have provided practically useless. The FBI denied my request to seek outside employment in an obvious attempt to deprive me of the ability to support my family. Finally, the FBI Inspection Division imposed an illegal gag order in an attempt to prevent me from communicating with my family and attorneys. Working as an FBI special agent was my dream job. My whistleblowing was apolitical and in the spirit of upholding my oath. Nonetheless, the FBI cynically elected to close ranks and attack the messenger. The FBI is incentivized to work against the American people and in dire need of drastic reform, particularly in these areas. 
The integrated program management system incentivizes the use of inappropriate investigatory processes and tools to achieve arbitrary statistical accomplishments. Mission creep within the national security branch has refocused counterterrorism from legitimate foreign actors to political opponents within our borders. The FBI weaponizes process crimes and reinterprets laws to initiate pretextual prosecutions and persecute its political enemies. Bureau intelligence analysis capability increasingly dictates operations, turning the FBI into an intelligence agency with a law enforcement capability. FBI collusion with big tech to gather intelligence on Americans, censor political speech, and target citizens for malicious prosecution. A dysfunctional promotion process fosters a revolving door of inexperienced, ambitious FBI supervisors ascending the management ladder within the agency. FBI informant protocols that are broken and abusive. The FBI skirts the Whistleblower Protection Act and exploits the security clearance revocation process to expel employees who make legally protected disclosures. I am pleased to see the Weaponization Committee is taking testimony from FBI whistleblowers. I would also like to take this opportunity to address correspondence recently received by the subcommittee. Yesterday, May 17, 2023, FBI Acting Assistant Director Christopher Dunham submitted a letter to this subcommittee. Portions of his letter concerned the suspension and revocation of my security clearance. Parenthetically, I also received a letter from the FBI Ex Executive Assistant Director Jennifer Moore yesterday notifying me that my security clearance was revoked. I find the timing of these letters dubious, but leave that up to the subcommittee's determination. Instead, I would like to address the, and add vital context to the portion of Mr. Dunham's letter pertaining to my alleged violation of Adjudicative Guideline J. Mr. Dunham is referring to an audio recording I created of my August 23, 2022 meeting with Jacksonville Assistant Special Agents in Charge Colt Markovsky and Sean Ryan. After making protected whistleblower disclosures to my immediate supervisor in August 19, 2022, ASAC Markovsky summoned me to a meeting at the FBI Jacksonville office. ASAC Markovsky told me the meeting was intended to be an opportunity to discuss my concerns. I anticipated the meeting might ultimately lead to my executive managers attempting to compel me to participate in an activity which placed public safety at risk. I was concerned ASAC Markovsky and ASAC Ryan may threaten adverse actions toward my career, a result of my whistleblower disclosure. Prior to the meeting, I consulted Florida law to confirm that a law enforcement exemption exists for state two-party consent restriction. I decided to record the meeting to memorialize our discussion and my concerns about the FBI's misconduct. When I entered the FBI Jacksonville office building, ASAC Markovsky and ASAC Ryan were having a private meeting. I waited for them in a conference room. When they entered, all of us placed our cellular phones on the conference table. As an experienced investigator who has conducted hundreds of recorded interviews, I noted how both ASAC Markovsky and ASAC Ryan repeated themselves throughout our discussion and continually insisted I agree to their premise that I was insubordinate and refusing to perform my job. I rebuffed each allegation and repeated that I believed I was fulfilling my oath of office. By making my disclosure about the FBI's rule of departures and the inappropriate risk to public safety via aggressive arrest tactics for January 6 subjects. It was my sincere belief that my ASACs were also recording our conversations. In January 2023, I participated in an interview with the FBI Security Division. During that interview, I was asked if I recorded my August 23, 2022 meeting with ASAC Markovsky and ASAC Ryan. I answered honestly that I had. Although it would seem to be an obvious and natural follow-up, the FBI Security Division interviewers did not request a copy of the recording. FBI Security Division should be gravely concerned if executive managers threaten subordinate whistleblowers with adverse action. 
I submitted that this omission by the FBI Security Division solidifies my contention that ASACs, Markovsky, and Ryan created their own recording of our meeting. The FBI was not concerned about potential whistleblower retaliation. The Bureau was only interested in learning if these actions were at risk of exposure. I pray that all members consider the information I and my fellow whistleblowers present. You may think I'm a political partisan. You may think I'm a grifter. You may think I'm a conspiracy theorist. It does not matter. Simply put, this committee should avoid te the temptation to impugn the character and the motivations of the messengers seated before you. I sacrifice my dream job to share this information with the American people. I humbly ask all the members to do your jobs and consider the merit of what I have presented. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Friend. I appreciate uh, your testimony. Mr. Allen, you are now recognized for your opening statement. Thank you, Chairman. Uh, hello, my name is Marcus Allen. I'm a staff operations specialist for the FBI in the Charlotte Field Office. Uh, due to whistleblower retaliation by the FBI, I've been suspended without pay for over a year. Uh, thank you to the committee for allowing me time today to convey my concerns about the current FBI. In particular, I am concerned, and I believe this committee should also be concerned, about the FBI's use of the security clearance process to retaliate against whistleblowers. First, though just so you know a little bit about me, I served honorably in the United States Marine Corps from 2000 to 2005. I was deployed to Kuwait and served two tours in Iraq and contributed to Operation Iraqi Freedom. During my deployments, I was exposed to live enemy fire on numerous occasions, even though I served primarily in analytical and intelligence roles. I was awarded the Navy and Marine Corps Commendation Medal and the Navy and Marine Corps Achievement Medal. I eventually joined the FBI and was Employee of the Year in 2019 in the Charlotte Field Office. As the holder of a top-secret security clearance since 2001, I've been trusted with the nation's greatest secrets. So why am I here today? Despite my history of unblemished service to the United States, the FBI suspended my security clearance, accusing me of actually being disloyal to my country. This outrageous and insulting accusation is based on unsubstantiated accusations that I hold conspiratorial views regarding the events of January 6, 2021, and that I allegedly sympathize with criminal conduct. I do not. I was not in Washington, D.C. on January 6th, played no part in the events of January 6th, and I condemn all criminal activity that occurred. Instead, it appears that I was retaliated against because I forwarded information to my superiors and others that questioned the official narrative of the events of January 6th. As a result, I was accused of promoting conspiratorial views and unreliable information. Because I did this, the FBI questioned my allegiance to the United States. Since I was suspended, there's been a dearth of communication from the FBI, with interactions seemingly only being forced by actions from my counsel or members of Congress. For example, I was not even interviewed, interviewed by anyone from the FBI until May of 2022. I was suspended in January of 2022. This interaction with the FBI happened on the heels of a public statement from a congressional member in early May of 2022. The member made statements indicating the FBI was conducting a purge of employees with conservative viewpoints. Within hours of the public statements, my counsel received a phone call from the FBI wanting to see if they could conduct an interview. I promptly complied and did an interview with investigators within a week. Throughout this ordeal, I and my counsel have responded quickly, whereas the FBI has only stonewalled. 
I have filed a federal civil rights lawsuit, which is pending, seeking to recover my livelihood and restore my good name. Recently, my counsel filed a whistleblower complaint with the Justice Department's Office of Inspector General. The complaint set forth retaliation through misuse of the security clearance process, as well as reprisal against me for making a protected disclosure. Interestingly enough, in the wake of the filing, the complaint I in the wake of filing the complaint, I received correspondence from the FBI indicating that my clearance had now been formally revoked. This occurred after filing my complaint with the IG. The new and baseless claims made in the letter had never been brought up prior to the issuance of the security clearance revocation letter. I have never had the opportunity to defend myself. I only had one interview with the FBI, which occurred a year ago after apparent prompting from Congress. In that interview, the investigators, towards the end of the interview, uttered in response to my exasperation, don't sue us. This has been a trying circumstance for me and my family. It has been more than a year since the FBI took my paycheck from me, and we're getting financially crushed. My family and I have been surviving on early withdrawals from our retirement accounts, while the FBI has ignored my request for approval to obtain outside employment during the review of my security clearance. We have lost our federal health insurance coverage, and there's apparently no end in sight. I'm hopeful scrutiny from Congress and from the Inspector General will deter the FBI from abusing the security clearance process to retaliate against others the way it's retaliated against me. This is why I filed a whistleblower retaliation complaint with the IG and why I'm here today to answer your questions. Thank you. And I also have a rebuttal if the member will allow me to. Thank you. This is a rebuttal of the FBI correspondence just recently sent to the committee in reference to my clearance suspension and now revocation. Calumny is not a word to be thrown around lightly. In regards to the FBI's treatment of me, it is fitting. This is conduct unbecoming of an organization given the public trust. Think about that. My treatment, without a doubt, has sent a chilling effect through what semblance remains of an analytical cadre. This was not a thorough investigation in my regard. I've not been afforded an opportunity to appropriately defend myself or confront the claims made against, made against me. Interestingly, the revocation language citing guideline E is the first instance I've ever seen referring to this specific guidance in my case. The claim that I obstructed a lawful investigation is dubious, and I do not recall ever being admonished for such an infraction. In regards to the paragraph in the letters highlighting an alleged incident with a special agent, I have no idea what it refers to. This alleged incident did not come up at all during the alleged thorough investigation. Again, as with Guideline E, this is the first appearance of this allegation during this entire ordeal. Next, I do not recall ever receiving a directive to stop sending information in regards to the sixth. Why would you not want any more information sent to you? Furthermore, the September 29, 2021 email referred to in the letter is part of a protected disclosure, and this correspondence represents documentary evidence of a protected disclosure as a source of retaliation and reprisal. Alternative analysis and differing viewpoints should be welcomed, even though they may not be ultimately acted upon by the actual decision makers. Groupthink should not be an ethos championed in an investigative organization. To shut down differing viewpoints is the end of any analytical or investigative body. It sends a chilling effect across the workforce and does not allow for intellectual freedom, which is vital to any investigative body seeking out the truth. It is possible the ire towards my perspective could have been due to folks wanting to maintain invincible ignorance 
instead of consciously and mentally transferring over to willful ignorance. This is the end of my statement. Thank you for my time. Thank you, Mr. Allen. Mr. Levitt. Chairman Jordan, Ranking Member Plaskett, members of the subcommittee, thank you so much for the invitation to testify today. I currently serve as the president of Empower Oversight. We're honored to represent Stephen Friend and Marcus Allen. FBI whistleblowers have second-class status compared to those in most federal agencies. When Congress adopted the modern system of whistleblower protections, it prohibited retaliation against FBI whistleblowers. But it gave them none of the process that other federal law enforcement agencies received, like the DEA, the ATF, U.S. Marshals, and Secret Service. Whistleblowers of those agencies can all file retaliation complaints with the U.S. Office of Special Counsel, an independent agency. FBI whistleblowers cannot. Whistleblowers at those agencies can all repeal retaliation to the Merit Systems Protection Board, on which I recently served. Until just last year, FBI whistleblowers could not. They finally got that right in last December's NDAA. But Congress must ensure that this new jurisdiction applies as intended to all FBI retaliation cases. Many have been wending their way for years through DOJ's long and extensive process. But the laws prohibiting retaliation have been on the books that entire time. The FBI cannot claim now that these are new rights just because they now have to justify their actions before the MSPB. Time has demonstrated, in my opinion, that it was a mistake to exclude the FBI from the standard whistleblower protection process. It discourages integrity and encourages deceit and even corruption. Congress should treat the FBI the same as all other federal law enforcement agencies, eliminating a special exception and giving its employees access to OSC to investigate retaliation. The hardworking of the employees of the FBI deserve equal protection of the law. The FBI's latest troubling practice is suspending security clearances to retaliate against whistleblowers. Mr. Friend and Mr. Allen, along with Mr. O'Boyle, are just several public examples of this trend. When the FBI suspends a clearance, it also immediately suspends the employee indefinitely, without pay. To make matters worse, it holds them and their families hostage by requiring them to get permission to take another job, permission the FBI routinely denies. Congress needs to ensure the FBI stops this abuse. In light of all these obstacles for FBI whistleblowers, you would think Congress would do everything that it could to welcome their disclosures here. But FBI employees coming to Congress have unfortunately been shamefully treated by Democrats on this committee. It's one thing to hear allegations and find them unpersuasive or even distasteful. An office can even ignore those allegations if they choose. That's their prerogative. But to go out and actively smear the individuals making disclosures is far worse. That's what the Democrats on this committee did when they released a March 2nd report entitled GOP Witnesses, What Their Disclosures Indicate About the State of the Republican Investigations. That report was inaccurate, both on the law and on the facts. The law doesn't define the term whistleblower. Instead, it protects from retaliation individuals who engage in protected activity. For over a century, simply making disclosures of any information to Congress has been a protected activity. Furthermore, an appropriations writer, in effect at this time, prohibits money from paying the salary of any federal employee who prohibits or prevents any other federal employee, such as FBI whistleblowers, from communicating with Congress. The Democrats' report denied whistleblower status to individuals engaged in the precise activity the legislative branch has considered protected since 1912. The report's reliance on evidence for whistleblower status is also misplaced. Simply communicating a reasonable belief of misconduct is protected whistleblower activity under the law. This applies regardless of whether the whistleblower produces evidence at that time backing up their allegations. 
only protecting whistleblower disclosures accompanied by conclusive evidence, as the Democrats seem to require, would have disastrous consequences for retaliation throughout the federal government. My experience working for Congress was that whistleblowers brought allegations, and where the committees found those allegations worthy of further follow-up and congressional action, we conducted investigations. No one expects a private citizen to investigate a crime before going to the police, and we didn't expect a whistleblower to investigate their own agency. That's also essentially how the law for remedying retaliation through the MSPB is set up, where making a non-frivolous allegation leads to discovery, interviews, and more. Simply put, the burden isn't on the whistleblower to produce the evidence at the outset. That's why there's an investigative process. The Democrats' report also got the facts wrong. For example, they claim DOJ IG declined to investigate Mr. Friend's claim, when in fact DOJ IG will be interviewing Mr. Friend tomorrow and has an ongoing investigation. DOJ IG says no one from the Democrat staff ever contacted their office to verify this claim before issuing their report. Inexcusably, a number of mainstream media sources simply repeated the Democrats' wrong information uncritically without bothering to check the facts for themselves, which is why there were multiple retractions. FBI whistleblowers have traveled a hard road over the years. They should be treated by Congress the same as other whistleblowers. Issuing reports smearing those who come forward from the FBI will unquestionably deter others from taking that same path. Congress must have first-hand information about how federal agencies are operating to perform its constitutional duty of oversight. Why would future whistleblowers bring their disclosures to Congress if they think they might be treated like this? Attacking whistleblowers hurts this committee and others, the House of Representatives as an institution, and Congress as a whole. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Levitt. The chair recognizes the gentlelady from Wyoming for five minutes. Thank you, Chairman Jordan. I want to thank our witnesses today for their service to our country, service which includes their willingness to provide protected disclosures to ensure that the federal government is held accountable for wrongdoing. We've heard their testimony, and my colleagues will ask more questions so we can further understand the wrongdoing they have exposed and the retaliation that they have now suffered. As this hearing gets underway, I want to focus on the cultural changes that have occurred within the FBI over the last 20-plus years, fundamental changes that have led to the political capture of our flagship law enforcement agencies, and with the Democrats using these agencies as their own personal political hacks. What happened that allowed for politicization to permeate every facet of the FBI? Well, there are many things. But I think we must focus on the information that was provided by retired FBI Special Agent Thomas Baker, who testified before the Select Subcommittee earlier this year. Mr. Baker explained <clears throat> that in the aftermath of 9-11, and upon being embarrassed by being scolded by President Bush for not being able to stop it from happening, then FBI Director Robert Mueller made the decision to fundamentally change the FBI from a law enforcement body to an intelligence-driven one. Such a redirection of the very purpose of the FBI resulted in centralizing its power in Washington, D.C., while placing less emphasis on the field offices. Changes that replaced agent executives in the headquarters with so-called professionals from the outside, and stockpiling more and more power in D.C. and away from the country that it serves. 9-11 was a watershed moment for many reasons. It was a horrific terrorist attack on the shores of the United States of America. But our government's ultimate response is also tragic. And by, targeting, by eventually finding a way to target not the terrorists, but American citizens, which is where the FBI and DOJ are at this point in time. 
Both the DOJ and the FBI, they've used the FISA court to obtain illegitimate surveillance authority. They've targeted political campaigns with which they disagree. They have created a Russia, Russia, Russia hoax to cripple a duly elected president. They have targeted Catholics for exercising their faith. They've targeted parents for wanting to protect their children. And the, what, so what we can say in short is that the eye of Soren has turned inward and it is burning with a white-hot intensity, intensity that seeks to destroy everything in its path. What I think we can say is that as the DOJ and FBI have become more political, they have amassed more power. And as they have amassed more power, they have become more political. This is a vicious cycle that must be stopped. To be blunt, the leadership of the FBI and the DOJ are corrupt. I will name names. Christopher Wray and Mary Garland are corrupt. They know it, we know it, and the American people know it. Congress needs whistleblowers like you to so that we can conduct our oversight and correct course on these abusive federal agencies. And sadly, what we've already seen and what we will continue to see today is that the Democrats will not focus on the substance of what these brave men are exposing or engage in a discussion about how to protect our constitutional rights and institutions from the tyrants that are running these agencies. Instead, what we will see is that they will deflect, they will call the witnesses names, they will scream MAGA, an extremist at the top of their lungs, they will attempt to impugn your integrity, but make no mistake, they are simply trying to cover up the unforgivable and the indefensible, which is the creation of a two-tiered justice system based on political beliefs and the corruption of our political elites. I encourage the American people to listen to these witnesses, to read the Durham report, to study what is happening with the FBI and the, and the DOJ, and to listen and to sift through the lies and recognize that this nonsense must stop or we're going to lose the greatest republic that's ever existed in the history of the world. Thank you for your willingness to come here Thank you for willing, your willingness to stand on the wall. Thank you for your willingness to tell the truth about what these agencies are doing. America thanks you as well. And with that, I yield back. I think all of us can agree that that statement was incredible. We should thank them. Because in the shadowed corridors of secrecy, where whispers echo and darkness looms, the weight of a confession takes on a significance that's far beyond mere words. It becomes a fragile ember of truth flickering amidst the engulfing darkness like a hidden gem in a treacherous maze. Its value lies not in the ease of its discovery, but the profound implications that it carries. So for the one who shouldn't be confessing, I guess their clandestine actions have woven a web of perilous secrets, binding them to the very forces they seek the demise of. In the dance of shadows, their every step is measured, every word carefully chosen, every tweet, truth, telegram post, video, 
carefully chosen. Yet amidst this treacherous game, the confession emerges as a defiant act of defiance, an audacious flare in the face of danger. Like a solitary voice piercing through the silence, the confession, a confession, hints at a deeper narrative, a hidden truth veiled from the prying eyes of tyranny. It holds the potential to unravel webs of deception, exposing the clandestine machinations, I guess, that threaten the very fabric of existence. And when one comes forward, and in its revelation lies the power to shift the balance, to dismantle the apparatus of control that seeks to extinguish the flames of liberty. To my archivist, I'm just going to put some music on. Please split this show into, you know, two parts for the podcast. We will have a quick intermission and come back with a bit more blowing of whistles. And keep in mind, how are you the underdog? It's almost impossible. Bad guys. Confessions. Well, here's a confession. You're not the underdog. (laughs) You know, there's this film called The Red Thread, and there's a character named Emma who's an aspiring artist that embarks on a journey of self-discovery and fulfillment. But throughout the narrative, her life and destiny are subtly depicted through visual cues, character interactions, and thematic motifs. In actual one poignant scene, Emma stands before a blank canvas, her eyes reflecting a mixture of determination and uncertainty. As she begins to paint, the strokes of the canvas mirror the emotions coursing through her. And each brushstroke represents a choice, a moment of agency that shapes her path. The evolving artwork becomes a visual metaphor for her life's tapestry, capturing the beauty and complexity of her journey. That happens to everyone. And throughout the film, reoccurring motifs accentuate the themes of destiny, interconnections, purpose, and this red thread symbolizes the invisible ties that bind people together, weaving a narrative tapestry that intertwines Emma's life with those that she encounters. And that thread appears in various forms, a fleeting glimpse of a red scarf, a glimpse of a crimson in the background, serving as a reminder that her fate is intricately linked with the lives of others. And in a pivotal scene, right, Emma finds herself in an unexpected encounter with an elderly artist who imparts wisdom and encouragement. 
As they engage in this heartfelt conversation, the camera captures the interplay of their expressions, conveying this shared understanding that transcends words. Ah, words. Verbal. Their connection reveals the synchronicity of their paths, and Emma realizes that her journey is not solitary, but part of a larger tapestry of the human experience. And as she transforms throughout the film, it becomes evident that her interactions with various characters and, and the way she navigates challenges, confronts personal demons, and embraces her passions, it's through these experiences that her growth is subtly depicted in her gestures, expressions, and the way she carries herself. And as an audience, you witness her evolving confidence, purpose, and self-sacrifice in what she has been silently acknowledging the unfolding of what people call destiny or purpose, whatever. A confession is more than a mere act of a revelation. It is an act of liberation. It sometimes becomes a beacon of hope, right? To all these people you heard, those four witnesses, because that's all you get when there's a hearing, when you have theater. It's a beacon of hope, illuminating the path for others to follow, empowering the silent voices that are yearning to break free from their shackles. It emboldens the oppressed, embarks them on a journey of resilience and resistance for the power of truth to transcend. Yet, it's important to note that every single confession does not come without peril. For those who stand against the shadows, know the price they must pay. I love the movie Usual Suspects. And like Kaiser Soze, a man that doesn't exist. While the film storyline may suggest that Kaiser Soze is a real person, the nature of the character is deliberately crafted to blur the line between reality that's accepted and reality that cannot be harnessed with the eyes of today. As you know, there was an unreliable narrator, and the plot twists of the film actually contribute to the ambiguity surrounding Kaiser Soze's existence. This ambiguity adds to the intrigue and captivates the audience's imagination, making Kaiser Sose an iconic and memorable character. Verbal. Verbal. Verbal kint. Do you know what kint means? Kint is defined as a, a class or group of people with Similar goals and verbal, not Virgil, it's actually verbal on the script, is that consisting of words. It's just words. Words of the common collective. Now, and in the context of this, I guess, what does Kaiser Soze represent? Verbal Kent, which was played by Kevin Spacey, narrates a story and provides information allegedly about Kaiser Sose. 
But at the end, there's a twist. There's no longer a limp. And that raises questions, I guess, to some that see it this way, is the reliability of his testimony. Others may see that verbal kind may have been Kaiser Soze himself. Or simply put, Verbal Kin's name could symbolize the power of words, right? And the embodiment of the collective voice of the populace. Verbal, as his name suggests, represents spoken word, language, and communication. That is the very essence of how ideas and narratives are transmitted. As the chief storyteller of the usual suspects, he takes on the role of the narrator. Weaving a tale that captivates and shapes the perception of everyone listening. In this interpretation, he becomes more than just a character. He becomes the personification of the collective will and desires of the people receiving. In, you know, Verbal Kint's role as a narrator and storyteller is crucial. Because he becomes the conduit through which the collective voice and narrative of the people are channeled. His storytelling ensures that the history being recorded is accurate according to the wishes of the populace, unfolding, I guess, in a way. A template for the future that they can paint themselves. And by embodying their words and desires, Verbal Kint assumes the responsibility of preserving and shaping the narrative of their struggle against tyranny. And through this lens or this take of the film. His character actually transcends individuality and becomes a vessel for the voice of the people. He becomes a guardian of their collective memory and the keeper of their stories, ensuring that the truth of their experiences is preserved and that their fight for freedom is never forgotten. And ultimately, this would highlight the power of storytelling and theater and deception and the role it plays in shaping collective memory, preserving history, and tapping into the potential of, of the people through empowering the populace to use discernment. Verbal Kent suddenly becomes a symbol of the people's resilience, their desire for their stories to be heard and their struggle to be acknowledged so it's not repeated. Confession, as I said, does not come without peril. But in their sacrifice, they become martyrs of truth. Setting goals for people to emulate. Warriors that stand against forces of oppression and evil. Their confession becomes a testament to their unwavering commitment, their refusal to be silenced, and their unwavering faith in pursuit of justice. So, I guess in the realm of clandestine affairs, where secrets intertwine and hidden truths beacon, a confession from the one who shouldn't be confessing should always be a beacon of hope and a catalyst for change. It represents the triumph of the human spirit over the forces of darkness, urging others to join the clandestine quest for freedom and reminding us that even in the face of grave danger, truth has the power to ignite the embers of revolution. And just like 
the film Red Thread. So artfully portraying the intricacies of just Emma's life in that movie and destiny. Without explicitly stating it, the actual film invites viewers to contemplate the profound ways in which individual choices and connections shape one's path, ultimately weaving together the tapestry of a meaningful existence. Whistleblowers are confessing. Confessions are hard to do because when you confess, you know that there are consequences. And they're showcasing the consequences that they have been facing for a long time for the people, not for them. Caused them more pain than it did anything else. So let's just see the first round of questioning here. Gentlelady from California, Ms. Sanchez. Um, Mr. Chair, just as a point of order, um, I understand and we have been made aware uh, from what you stated uh, in your opening statement as well as in a press conference earlier that Mr. Allen did meet with you all um, and might have a testimony that was transcribed. Neither, and I understand that he stated that he did not feel comfortable meeting with the Democrats. He's comfortable being here today in open, this open forum. We will be questioning him. Will you give us a copy of that testimony that was transcribed of your discussions with him? That'll be up to Mr. Allen. Um, but you are in possession of them, aren't you? Sure are. So why would you not give them to us? Mr. Allen's a whistleblower and he didn't want that to happen. We'll he talk didn't want, him. but he's ha ha comfortable here in open discussion with us today? Sure is. You can ask him questions if you want. You, you don't share the, your information with the minority? Nope. The whistle. No, so that, you're not sharing that, information the, the, that the whistle, you've obtained with the, with the whistleblower, was, whistleblower saw what you did with uh, Mr. Friend and others, the, the false information you gave the press so much no. so that they had to issue corrections. The whistleblower no. doesn't we've decide seen, that. The committee decides it. And, and we've decided. And you've so decided that decided you're not going to share. Mr. Allen is here. You can ask him questions. And we can, we can talk about the testimony, but right now you're not getting the testimony. Mr. But Allen's you, here to testify. And you'll give us the testimony when? After he's left or at no point in time? Or when will we have that? That's only for the Republicans. Is that what you're saying? Mr. Chairman, the, the gentlelady did not state a point of order. The point of and order was, will he order. be giving us the mm -hmm. testimony of the witness that is here before us it's and that you have information Mr. of Chairman, I asked that you're not sharing Mr. with Mr. the Chairman, Democrats. Chairman, I moved that her I, was, her... I was indulging the ranking member. The gentleman from California is right. She's not stated a point of order. The, the uh, five-minute questioning So time the point of order is I would like the testimony. I move that you give us the testimony of the individual. Move to table. Here. Uh, there's a motion that's been moved to table. Uh, Chair, uh, we will call... Yes. We, we don't, Mr. Chairman, we don't have to table. We ask for a recorded vote. Mr. Chairman, can we have yeah. a recorded vote? No, it's not a proper point of order. You it's just a did a motion to table. No. Your not, side not just a did a motion to table. Uh, not a proper motion. Not a uh, the Mr. chair Chairman, has I, recognized the gentlelady from California, Ms. Sanchez, Chairman, I, I for her five a, minutes of questioning. Listen carefully. She's asking to see his testimony. The transcript of the testimony and Jim Jordan's panicking. No, I'm not giving it to you. That's not the way it works. Two reasons. One, to walk everything back, kind of like, you know, Linux did. 
oh, I need to compartmentalize the State Department's IG division separate from the State Department because that way I could track all of Hillary Clinton's emails, delete them, and provide them to you in uh, doses that I see fit. Fact. So why don't the Democrats get a copy of it? Just listen. This is interesting. Inquiry. Can I ask you a question? Sure. Mr. Chairman? Oh, it is. Yeah, it is. Can Ms. I Sanchez ask time. the chairman a question? After Ms. Sanchez, I'll, I'll gladly take your question, Ms. Sanchez, and we will restore the five minutes for Ms. Sanchez. <clears throat> I find it incredible that evidence that one side has garnered is not going to be shared with the other side. That is not how committees work. Chairman Jordan, yeah. Ranking Member Plaskett, I think it's important that we recognize this hearing for what it actually is. Make no mistake, this hearing is a vehicle to legitimize the events of January 6th and the people who perpetrated it. And why? Because Donald Trump is running for president again. And if you normalize the events of January 6th, if you repeat his election fraud lies, then maybe he doesn't seem quite so extreme. Maybe it will be easier to overturn a free and fair election the next time. For those of you who have forgotten, on January 6th, a mob of people who believed Donald Trump's lie that the 2020 election was stolen stormed the Capitol seeking to stop the certification of the 2020 presidential election. They erected gallows on the lawn just outside this room, and they ran through the halls looking to find and hang the Vice President of the United States. It was a shocking moment of political violence, and many of us on this dais, including myself, were there that day. We all felt the fear of knowing that there were people roaming the Capitol looking to kill us. But clearly, some of us have quickly forgotten that. I've heard my colleagues on the other side of the aisle suggest that, quote, the FBI was participating in the insurrection. They called the rioters who attacked the Capitol, quote unquote, peaceful patriots and, quote unquote, political prisoners. And they described the violence on January 6th as akin to a, quote unquote, normal tourist visit. It was not. Last year, the Judiciary Committee even had to entertain a resolution on the repeatedly discredited Ray Earp's conspiracy theory. Mr. Allen, your security clearance was first suspended on January 10th, 2022. Is that correct? Yes or no will suffice. And the FBI's reason behind your suspension was because it found, it, found you to have, quote, espoused conspiratorial views both orally in writing and promoted unreliable information which indicates support for the events of January 6th. Is that correct, yes or no? That is the language that they placed on the letter. That's a yes, then. Do you believe it's important for federal agents to have allegiance to the United States, yes or no? It is absolutely important that personnel I'll take that as a yes. Do you believe States? you should have allegiance to the United States to possess a security clearance? Yes or no? Absolutely. Do you believe your obligation as a federal agent should supersede your First Amendment right? Yes or no? Can you please rephrase the question, ma'am? Do you believe that your obligation as a federal agent should supersede your First Amendment right? Yes or no? I don't know. Can you please rephrase the question again, ma'am? Do you believe that you have an obligation to serve as a federal agent regardless of what your personal political beliefs are? 
What is she asking? What is she asking? What is she asking? What is she asking? If you have a clearance and you're an FBI agent, you are not allowed to question shit. And if we're violating the U.S. Constitution and if we're conducting an operation, you need to keep your mouth shut. You know what? I've had the similar conversation. Remember this, John Brennan? Know your place. That's exactly what she's telling him. Know your place. Know your place. You should not challenge what we tell you. You should just do. You should not have things pass the smell test and, and express your concerns because we hired you because your analyses and your skills and, 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 and insight is what we wanted, but we don't want that. We just want your obedience. Praetorians, 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 listen to what she's saying. Yes, I have an Thank obligation you. to Thank serve you. the United States. Do you States believe that FBI agents should be permitted to express support for individuals who stormed the Capitol on January 6th? Yes or no? I believe agents have to do their jobs, ma'am. Do you believe that agents should be permitted to express their support for individuals who stormed the Capitol on January 6th? Yes or no? It's a simple question. No, you're supposed to be apolitical, ma'am, and do your job so as that an is FBI a no? person. You're supposed to be apolitical and do your job. I'm asking as... for a simple yes or no. Can you please not a difficult? The that is a difficult question. Because you're not supposed to show support in anything when you're conducting an investigation. I say this all the time. And a lot of people think that I have, you know, personal aspirations when I I analyze something. Like, for example, you know, I've shared information from people that are like, why are you sharing that stuff? And it's like, nobody cares about the person. Objectivity. Information as it is. When you're analyzing information, conducting an investigation, doing a deep dive research, you must maintain impartiality. And so she's not asking a question that can be answered. She's telling him that you must denounce everyone that stepped foot in there regardless. Even the old lady that was pushed in with the crowd and thought, well, I'll just mosey on in because people are pushing and it's going to be better than me toppling over and being trampled on or, hey, I didn't know it was wrong or in her eyes, you must obey. War is peace. Peace is war, I guess. Right? Question, do you believe that FBI agents should be permitted to express support for individuals who stormed the Capitol on January 6th? You should not be voicing support for criminal conduct. You okay, have thank you. You job apolitically, ma'am. Thank you. Mr. Allen, have you ever used Twitter, yes or no? I have utilized Twitter, yes, ma'am. Okay, and is your account at Marcus A9705064? That is absolutely not my account. Okay, that's not your account. Well, on December 5th, 2022, an account under the name Marcus Allen retweeted a tweet that said, That is not my account, ma'am. You haven't let me finish the question, sir. You might have been the football player. You haven't. So now let me bring my personal experience. I remember when I was in court, the attorney general was like, this is yours. I was like, no, it's not. This is yours. Just because you're saying it's not true. This is yours. No. They do that shit. And this is exactly what she's doing. They will restate something, even if it's not true, and say, well, based on this, but it's not mine. Doesn't matter. Not mine. Doesn't matter. Not what? You need to acknowledge. I'm not acknowledging shit. And they will constantly hound it. I'm telling you from personal experience, that happened to me. 
from personal experience that happened to me. And I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? Is it, what, what, this is a court of law. This is not supposed to be happening. I'm not going to admit that something's mine because you want me to say that it's mine. This is what she's doing. I had the same exact interaction with the now dead attorney general and his twinkle toes, Perel Grossman. Has he been rolled up yet? I have to look into that, but maybe people in North Dakota can look into that. But I've been through the same conversation. <laughs> I'm like, that's not mine. What are you talking about? Yeah, that, that, that. Let's continue this. This is fun. Super fun. And let me finish the question. On and the time is mine. On December 5th, 2022, an account under the name of Marcus Allen retweeted a tweet that said, quote, Nancy Pelosi staged January 6th, retweet if you agree, end quote. Do you agree with that statement? Yes or no? Yes. That that is I don't no ma'am that's not my account at all I have I'm no asking idea. whether you agree with that statement yes or no Can you please rephrase the statement yeah. Do you think I'm the gentle lady has expired As you can see he didn't deny it he just said you need to restate it What did I say The Pelosi staged it all Well they gave the stage and all the assets both right left and middle helped it come to fruition. I mean, you need your paid actors, you need your producers, you need your directors, and then you need your extras. Hmm. But his face says, yeah, she created the foundation. She ensured to get this done. Now she needs to be quiet. Hmm. Thank you, Mr. Allen. Thank you for your service. Staged January 6th. I just want him to answer. He'll answer. He'll answer. Yeah, he'll answer. I'm just telling you your time's up. Do you believe that Nancy Pelosi, do you agree with the statement that this person tweeted that Nancy Pelosi staged January 6th? Yes or no? No. Thank you. I yield back. So I can't wait for the body language ghost to analyze that because I'm going to tell you what I see. I see, well, yeah, but she wasn't alone and there were a lot of parts, but she kind of helped with a lot. That's what his body said. Like, oh, well, I mean, if you want to bring it down to it, she was part of it. And, uh, you know, her daughter and her son-in-law were doing all the video takes and getting the extras together. So, oh, if you guys aren't following Body Language Ghost, man, skills are off the hook. Freaking love it. I love her voice, too. But you saw it. Uh, dude, like seriously. Like that was, he tried. Poker face tried. But you could see it. He didn't say she was exclusively, but yeah, she was part of it. A very big part of it. Remember Alexandra Pelosi, Michael Voss? Do you remember that? Do we need a refresher? Maybe we should do a refresher. Let me show you. Let me show you. Let me get this up. It's important that we see it again. Is like many, oh, where's your documentary? My documentary? Well, we're pretty much done. But we can't put it out until a lawsuit is filed. I mean, it's not going to be good if we don't get any merit. We don't just want people to watch a movie. We want accountability. And to get accountability, you must at all times ensure that you have all your ducks in a row and that you put it all together. Because as you can see, one person was let loose and you're like, why were they let loose? Well, maybe you should revisit part of this trailer that I put out. Or you know what? Yeah, let's look at part of this trailer. And when it comes to the picture, you'll see 
That guy hanging out with the climate shaman, that's Michael Voss. That's Alexandria Pelosi's husband. That's Nancy Pelosi's son-in-law. The White House. A photo is worth a thousand words. So which words do these two say? One by a documentary photographer, the other dismissed and suppressed. But it's actually the contrary, and it's all on film. When the truth has been left in the open so abundantly, suppression and framing are the only tools they have left. So let's go to the exact moment this photo was taken. Here's the lamp. Pay close attention to who's grabbing it. And here's the photographer. Meet Melanie Wagner. Melanie describes the photo as a mob of Trump supporters ransacking the Capitol through a broken window. But as we can see, the lamp is clumsily dropped on someone wearing headphones and picked up by someone very friendly to her. And there is more than one friendly face in the crowd. So friendly, in fact. He passes the bat to break the other window. And who might this be peeking out from the room? Whoever he is, he has a very expensive red cinema camera. In fact, there are quite a few very expensive cinema cameras filming what's going on. With people wearing backpacks and holding equipment like microphones in tow. People tried to stop them, but individuals were suddenly overwhelmed. So what's the story behind this photo? So that's the trailer. What you have on your screen right now is Michael Voss. Obviously, they have a great connection with HBO, and unfortunately, they uploaded so many hours of footage of the Capitol on an unsecure HBO server. So weird, so open, so out there. And one person walked. See, it wasn't happenstance. But I call myself the chaos coordinator. See, you create chaos so you can divert attention in order to conduct. This is an operation within an operation within an operation. There's one operation that I will never touch. Only because it is so beautiful. But the layered ones, haha. Now that's a big deal. So you have to think to yourself, deception pretty big. And that can tell you why there's so much hate. Hate. <sighs> and fear. When the only thing that guides you is the light of truth at your feet, hmm, and service to others, it's scary. All those that opine and tell you how patriotic they are because they have people talking on their show. Remember, what is President Trump 
do. He's fantastic at shining the light on people he wants you to watch as their pants fall. And other times, simply to communicate. Now, I'm going to make this statement. Make this statement, and that is how I will end the second part of today's show. They're only an hour and a half each, but sorry, guys, I got to run. Here's the statement. How many of you know what exactly happened? I can tell you the date that they implemented their plan over a plan over a plan. And I can even give you the name of the CIA asset uh, that helped and tried to uncover the only operation I will not speak of. And that person has been paraded in your conservative networks. We're talking podcasters, reawakens, you name it. They've infiltrated everything. I mean, the CIA is pretty good. They're pretty, pretty good. And they're very convincing. So here's the date the plan actually went down. December 28th. And I'll tell you what. With someone that I work very close with, obviously, um, I said on January 6th, damn, that's the date we need to look at. And here we are in 2023, two and a half years later, confession from my counterpart. You were right. It was December 28th. And you were right. There needs to be one linchpin to bring it together. And I will say her name. If you want to see what Ray Epps is, all you have to see is the person that actually helped bring it all down. Bringing it all down. Cindy Chafin. I've said this before. I mean, here I come. Oh boy. Here I come. And that's the way the cookie crumbles. All of them. Deceived. Willingly, unwillingly, knowingly, unknowingly. Well, time will tell. You can only see from actions. When there's suppression, then you know someone's got something to hide. When there's no suppression, well, I love train wrecks. But I also love telling you when I'm coming, here I am. It's toast.